We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. And good morning, this is Dave Debo. Coming up on the program today, Ahmad Nevis will be here. We jumped in and saw a lack of education on home ownership. So he's founded the Buffalo Information Sharing Cooperative. They work on financial literacy programs, grassroots programs, to help reduce the low home ownership rates in Buffalo's communities of color. He's coming up in about half an hour with Thomas O'Neill White. But first, I want to go back to 2013. Karima Morris realized that there needs to be more resources spent on finding, missing, runaway, and exploited and trafficked community members. So she takes the step of founding the Bury the Violence Initiative. Since then, it has expanded to work on everything from ways to memorialize homicide victims, to provide aid for their families, even fund some of their headstones. She's here today to talk a little bit about it with us. Uh, Karima, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Statistically, is there a disparity between the recovery rates of missing runaways or trafficked kids of color and the rest of the population? Absolutely. There is a lack of information. Often parents don't want to share because of the way our children are viewed when they run away as if they don't count or they're often viewed as uh, running away with um, boyfriend or a girlfriend. Yeah. So sometimes we hold back that information. I'm picturing a scenario, though, if if it's uh, suspected to be a runaway, where the police will probably not get involved anyway. Oh, she's just a runaway. She'll show up again. And that's the issue. Every child that runs away doesn't run because they want to. And not every child, like my niece was missing. She wasn't a runaway, but they listed her as a runaway. And this is how you or why you founded the organization back in 2013. Your niece Absolutely. was missing. You saw a gap and said, I can help here. So in 2013, Lanasia Rolerson is my oldest niece. She went missing and we reached out for help. She was listed as a runaway. We told them she didn't run away. We noticed the clues and the signs. And ultimately, when you know your child, you know if they leave things behind, they didn't leave things they wanted to leave. And that's how we knew she didn't run away. Needless to say. If she was running away, she would have packed a backpack. Yep. If she she needs running, her snacks. Okay. She All needs right. her smell goods and her clean underwear. None of that <laughs> stuff was taken, you know. So we knew it was a problem. Ultimately, uh, what what was the situation? Lanasia was, she kidnapped? was She was murdered. Um, I'm sorry. Thank you. So she had... Um, was said to be at a party, which was around the corner from the house. And the slack and the feedback was, where were her parents? Well, no parent sleeps in front of their door all night to keep their kids or lays in front of windows. And as children, we all did something mm -hmm. against what our parents believed were. It didn't give anyone a right to take her life. 
And that's exactly what they did. How was your group, or how were, be then it was probably before the group, how were they involved? What did you do at the time? Well, actually, it started with me and my sister looking for her. We didn't leave any stone unturned. And actually, we were getting people to tell us where she was at. We didn't know she was dead. So she was right in the backyard of the house that they said she was at. But the police told me it was a holiday and there was no detective. And this was Labor Day holiday. Since then, they have created more forces and things like that and resources available that work on holidays. With that being said, the information um, from the homeowner wasn't given, so they couldn't technically go in the house behind where we were told she was at, and she was actually there for three days. I, that's the, was going to be the next question. Between the time she was missing and the time you found the body, three days? Yes, yeah, so the police um, persuaded me to go for questioning or something when they actually were out there at the crime scene. They wanted me out the way, and they... They had the tape out, and so by the time I got out of the police station, um, everybody was calling and telling me that there's yellow tape right where you guys were at, and we went there, and that's where she was. If this is painful, tell me to shut up and not ask the next question. I'm fine. Thank you. Out- outline outline what happened. Um, it was Sunday uh, morning, which she usually would go to church with her grandmother, and uh, my sister got up. She thought that Lanasia was at church. When everybody returned from church, it was a red flag. Where's Lanasia? So I worked at the Niagara Falls outlet. My sister called me and told me what was going on. I told her, file the police report, do whatever, I'm leaving. I'm closing the store if I have to. And I came to the city. Um, we instantly started going in the places that we thought she could be. We started searching around everywhere within the radius of that mile. Um, Then we started putting stuff on Facebook. We made flyers and it just escalated. Stuff started coming in. And when I was asking for her by her name and showing her picture, the people in the community were using a different name. Mm. They were calling her two o'clock. So why? That's not her name. Her name is Lanasia. And then it dawned on me to ask, why are you calling her two o'clock? And they said, oh, that's the time we call her out. Who is we? And why are you calling her out, her house? Okay. And so that's the, you know, the dialogue that was kind of shut off in court because they were making her out to be a prostitute and not a child who could have been trafficked Mm. by her peers and her classmates. What has changed since then? You, as an aunt, started this effort to find her. These days, you support families who have missing kids. Do you do more now than you knew how to do back then? Absolutely. The experience uncovered a lot, a lot that still hasn't been said, a lot about the trafficking that actually goes on in our communities and um, how we need to really take time to unravel the whole ball. So that part hasn't been uncovered, but I've learned how to more strategically find them, how to use the resources that we used, like the kids and the social media. The kids talk. Rather, they're bragging on something or, you know, they're just leaving clues, the friends or the associates. So it's always important to watch your children's social media pages if they do have them. How big of a problem is trafficking, in your opinion? It's a catastrophe. Because you don't know the person next door that your child plays with, 
they go over there to eat. That person could be one of those in the link that's used as a house. So there was spaces where they fed kids, spaces where they partied, and these were parents, right? Mm. And so some people are comfortable with their children going to other people's houses. And these children were all linked back to her in grammar school as friends that she had grew up with. And you use the phrase a pipeline that really kind of describes it, I guess, right? It starts out maybe with dinner at the friend's house and just slides down that pipeline? Well, yeah. So um, they have sets or hangouts, things like that. And you think your child's going to a friend's, like, you know, old school. Mm. And it's just really a a hot spot for the kids to hang out while they're waiting. Because 2 o'clock in the morning, who's calling out a 12 and 13-year-old child? In in your experience, and I know there might not be hard numbers or the hard numbers that you have might be different than the ones the police have, but uh, in your experience, how often is a missing kid on the east side trafficked? So I can't speak to those numbers because at the end of the day, they're not, the parents aren't comfortable with saying that, right? Okay. And sometimes they don't even have the awareness of why their quote-unquote runaway has ran. But you certainly believe that Fewer of them are runaways than get labeled as runaways. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You think as um, an uncle, a grandparent, a parent, that your child just wants to leave at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning out of their nice home into the community to encounter other people and then come back home and do it the same the next day? Part of me says the argument is the teen's party, though, that that they're going to sneak out of the house and do something, No. That's the way it was when we were younger. Okay. Okay. When it was called pimping and all of that, you knew to stay away from that. When you're groomed into this lifestyle by your associates, by by your peers, it's totally different. I'm not talking, though, about prostitution or trafficking. I'm just thinking of the kid that pops out in the middle of the night to have a, uh, an illicit drink. Yeah. Okay. True, but... When do the kids realize that it's a systematic thing? So that's the start for you. That's the start of this pipeline. Right. Okay. They have to be aware of what's going on and who's your friends. I used to do a what about your friends talking to the youth so they can understand the people that are around them are usually just associates or peers. They're not your friend. Mm. How often do you get called out on? I don't even know. Do we call them cases? How 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 many uh, how many uh, people does bury the violence end up uh, working with on an average week or so? Probably ten fifteen. So I'm in a network of um, missing children where we share it from Rochester, Jamestown, Buffalo. But here in the city, I might get an inbox, a tag. It could be two or three kids a day. Wow, that many. Yeah, and so I'll ask, can I make a flyer? Or can I help or however, you know, and then that's the way it starts, because ultimately the information has to be in circulation. This child could be walking past you at Walmart and you don't even know they're missing. Mm. And they are predominantly African-American kids. Yes, we also have Hispanic, Latino. And then you know that the Native American, I'm sorry, the indigenous people community has a high rate of uh, missing. And so um, even with Jalen. Griffin, he's been missing for two years. He was missing at the age of 12 years old. It should have been 
red flags all over the place once this kid was at home five days later. So, I mean, like, when is it enough? When is it serious enough for the community to stop p- placing judgment and really get the information out there? So if it was just a standard runaway, I'm upset with my mom or my dad, I leave the house, maybe I party with some friends, typically that kid would return after a day or so? Right. Okay. Right. But when they don't... And a lot of kids get upset when they see their stuff on social media, right? Yeah. And so somebody's saying, oh, they're not running away or they're not missing, right? And so that's the person Mm. that you start to talk to because why do you know that? Yeah. Take me through the process. I'm I'm a parent and I reach out to bury the violence. What happens next? What do you do? I get the information the last time you seen them, what they had on, their height, their weight. So I do a flyer. And so I also need to know, you know, the relationship between the parent and the child. So sometimes I have to ask a little bit more questions to the parent. Um, because even if they ran away or do they know anything different, did they take their phone? A lot of time you notice that these kids' phones have been taken from them. So that's the set that say it was already some dialogue somewhere that the parents had to take their phone. Why you and why not the police? Or do you do they do this too? The community often doesn't trust the police and they feel as though it takes too long. 24 hours is a whole day wasted. If it's 48 hours to get something done, <clears throat> excuse me, if it's 48 hours in a time since, then we've already lost 24 So I believe that information has to get out in circulation so we don't have a missed opportunity. And I'm not trying to play the race card if it's not there to be played. But do you think that's what's going on, that that the lack of um, police aggressiveness in chasing these cases is because these kids aren't going to be missed? They're just people of color. Well, I can't say that. So I can say it's a lack of resources. Okay. I can say that we have to push, and that's why I'm in the middle. It's a lot of red tape. I'm a green tape organization. It is an urgency to me to get your child home. And so where they may have other cases and other situations, me and my team take it upon ourselves to get that information out expediently. Karima Morris is with us. She's the executive director, founder of Bury the Violence Initiative, And uh, as you've been hearing, she talks about working with people who have lost their kids. Sometimes that loss is, as as your initial story uh, unfolded, a homicide. You work with families then to to ease their pain after the fact. Yes. So um, it's so easy to go into a case thinking it's going to be found and returned. And that's not always the case. Even as adults, when they go missing or we're looking for them, I end up helping families after they've been murdered or they're found deceased. And so I advocate for them with the funeral homes to make sure that the DA's office has a grant where they get up to $6,000. I make sure that they get that funding positioned the right way Mm. where the funeral home may want to give you a Cadillac. You need a Chevrolet, right? Right, and so and especially if the Chevy costs six thousand, but the other is ten, right? Okay. So we try to make sure that they have the less um, stress on them as possible. We advocate for them. We honor their wishes. We go back and forth between those businesses and those vendors to make sure they have everything they need within a certain amount. 
And so some people have nothing. And just think about it. A homicide is unexpected. Mm. And then they have children left behind. The resources that they may have need to go to those children. Right. So it just spins off to so many different areas that we end up working with families because each family has a unique need after that loss. The state has a crime victims compensation fund. Does that come into play? So they get up to $6,000. Oh, that's the 6000 you spoke of. It's okay. only for the funeral. It's not for the burial. Hence your name, Bury the Violence. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so the burial, you know, entails them opening and closing the plot. Mm-hmm. You have to buy a plot. Right. Okay. Then you have to have it open and closed. Then you have to think about um, headstones and those things. So... That's a whole separate entity. You have a separate foundation that helps with headstones and burial costs. So it's all tied into the same thing, one name. So we um, would raise funds for headstones, and that way people have a way to memorialize and to decrease the street memorials. You know, when you're going to buy a home, like those young men could tell you, when you go to buy a home and you see bears, bottles, and balloons tied to poles in front of houses, that indicates it's homicide. Yeah. If I turn a corner, that indicates this is what's going on in this neighborhood. So it decreases the property value. And you work with communities to get rid of these makeshift memorials to find something more permanent. So we went through the city and they have this program and we can do memorial gardens, right? We can do rocks. There's alternative ways to have memorials without it being that way, which You don't want a neon sign that says, this is the site of a murder. Not that this is the site of a murder because people want to memorialize, but just the way that we do it, right? And so if it beautifies the neighborhood, that's great. It's okay to memorialize. I'm not saying that. So, but if you have bears that are wet and the kids Mm. come out at the bus stop and then it's these papers that's washed off and the bottles that's not welcoming it's not really what I want my child to see on their way to the bus stop every day to have that trauma you know that rock may not show exactly that memorial but we know what it is and as they grow older they can understand but it's it's a different way to honor the life of the one that was lost this program obviously springs from the events on May 14th and whenever I've talked to uh, different guests Sometimes they talk about otherization, the idea that the top shooter was able to drive from, the accused shooter was able to drive from Binghamton and seek out a neighborhood where people had been otherized, where it didn't really matter and he could he could just do what he did. Same situation here? Is there some otherization going on, do you think? I can't say that because often it's black on black crime. Okay. Right. And so there's not a white person coming in our community and trafficking. Okay. So we have control over that when we get to those houses and we know those people and we have to have a voice in a safe space and where we could tell who's what mm. in our neighborhood. So if we were otherized, it would be probably on a different level, not at this level. Okay. Talk to me about the community in general, beyond maybe the work that you do with Bury the Violence. Um, what do you think the biggest need right now is? A sense of ownership and belonging. Often people can tear up what they don't feel like they have a part of, right? So you could tear up a house that mm. is not yours. 
If you don't have a sense of ownership to that and you don't take pride in it, then what value is it to you? Yeah. Uh, Henry Lewis Taylor at UB has done significant studies into uh, the problems of the East Side community. One of the things that, that he's uncovered, I wish I had the statistics right in front of me, but I believe rental rates, lack of home ownership on the East Side, uh, rental rates are at least 70% compared to other parts of the city where home ownership is much higher. That's what you're talking about here. Absolutely. And then the rentals that are available are deplorable. These places are obscene. And for the price, it's insulting. Why would we want to live in infestations, in dilapidating properties? It's totally disrespectful. What can be done? We can have, well, they have these programs right now, $30,000 given to approved said person in that community. But then you got to look at the credit. So we need credit. Um, we need, I'm sorry, trying to think of education yeah. on how to have our credit built and the different areas that they look at when they look at when you buy a home opposed to when you buy a car. We need the education on those things before they just drop a $30,000 grant in a community where everybody doesn't have a 700 score. All right. And if someone does the credit repair first, they can get ahead with the extra money. But you're saying that without the credit repair, without the education, it's a losing battle. And how to maintain it. Okay. Because you still have to have money for house repairs, right? Yeah. So if they don't educate us fully, you give us a little bit. Credit repair is great. But do you know about the utilization? Do you know about the other factors that will play into that outside of that mm. repair credit? A busted hot water tank can be a hundred, two hundred, five hundred bucks that you're not expecting, right. counting on, and suddenly you've got to you've got to put that down. You need in the a reserve, yeah. right? You need a reserve. So it's great that they put it there, but it's only for a few people. Talk to me a little bit about the ways that the community is segregated. Um, East Side is certainly different from other parts of the city. What can be done to get more interaction and less segregation? We need to learn how to embrace each other for who we are. The sides of the city that we live on don't define who we are, right? So I came back here from Wheatfield. Mm. I didn't want to. I didn't want to put my kids in the schools, right? And so now I work for the schools. And I have one child left in school, and I just thank God for that because the way times are changing and the things that are happening, it's crazy. So if we just take the time to realize that there's really no difference, right, it's about what's shared on the news. There's things that go on in South Buffalo that won't be publicized. But if it happens on the east side, it's plastered. Okay. I might not know about the domestic violence or the homicides that happen in South Buffalo because yeah. it's not publicized the same way. And certainly if it's happening up in Wheatfield, we're not going to hear about it. You're definitely not going to hear about it. Talk to me a little bit about that. How do you end up there and why? And why'd you come back? <laughs> so I had an incident where my daughter was, um, quote unquote, missing. For She didn't come home from school. And when I lived in Niagara County, because it's the highest rate of sexual offenders, they have those programs there. They put an Amber Alert out on my teenage child because she wasn't home within the said Let time. Let me back up just for a second. Niagara County has the highest rate Say that sexual again. sexual assault or sex offenders. Okay. Living right. in Niagara County. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, those trailers and those hotels, they're housed in those places. 
So they have a different respond, which time is of the essence. So I learned that there. Mm. We don't have that here. So um, I got off with that one. So um, it's a it's a huge difference in how people take ownership. Even if you're living in an apartment, they have a sense of pride because they feel safe and they know that if something happens, somebody's going to back them up. Somebody's going to see them through, you know, and we don't really have that kind of trust. And the police are trying to build those things. They're having community days. They're reaching out to the community to see what they need. But we have to embrace that. And so start having a sense of pride and ownership. My uncle used to tell what well, he tells me all the time. I talk to him. <laughs> As black people, we don't, quote unquote, know where we came from. We don't have a sense of ownership like Hispanic, like Irish, like Italian, like African. Pride in place results in the kind of taking care of that place that you say doesn't exist. Right. Okay. And so you have to have pride in yourself and your own family and your unit and those things in your safe space. You have to take pride in those things. So you can have a sense of belonging. You have to create those things that aren't given to us. What has changed since 2013? Um, Is the problem a different scope or a different size? Um, Is the police reaction different? You started this back then. You're still doing it now. I can't imagine that it's the same whatever that is occurring, is it? I think that the police are coming into a better space on responding right they're putting the stuff out quicker on their social media page you didn't see it like that then so you see interaction that alone is huge because if you put that out before you do you know oh 24 hours Mm -hmm. of file a missing person report but this kid's not home so the red tape still wages a lot of what they can't do the official report has to wait 24 hours but you can push it out all over social that's how I feel. Okay. And that's what I do. I can't speak for them. All right. So they have a awareness. They have community policing a little bit more than they ever had then. Those, play, those small parts are playing into the big picture. Has recruitment and trafficking changed? Is it different now than in 2013? I think it's more hidden. And you know what's so crazy? I see Broadway as like, an open space for people to come out. A lot of those kids are right in front of us. But do you know that somebody's child with a wig on? You know, mm. do you realize that's a child? Do you know what's going on? No, because it's not even out there. And if you don't know I exist, you don't know to look. How does someone find more information? Bury the Violence Coalition? No. Are they so, online? So we're um, BTV Foundation, but on social media, we're Bury the Violence on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, Bury the Violence. So our um, paperwork is BTV Foundation Incorporated, and then everything else is just umbrella under there. I imagine if I was talking to a hospice nurse or, or someone uh, dealing with cancer patients that are terminal, they would still say, they are optimistic, despite the fact that patients die. Are you optimistic? I have to have hope and faith in everything that it will turn out positive, but I can't be at my end of the road if it doesn't turn out the way I hoped for it. 
So I always shine a light, even with Jalen Griffin being gone since 2020. We've got no leads on a child who's now only 14 years old and still in this community. We have more backdraft of how people feel about his situation than we do people saying to the police, this is I seen this child or that. Why? Why is it more talk amongst each other? So I have hope that he will be found. I have hope that he could still be alive. I can't tell his parents how to feel. Mm. I can only embrace them and tell them that we're going to get through this and we're going to find Jalen. All right. One more time. How do how do people reach you? BTV Buffalo at gmail.com. Bury the Violence on Facebook, Instagram. You can inbox me. And my website is btvbuffalo.org. Kareem Morris, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Earlier in the program, you heard her speak about ownership and housing and credit. Perfect segue. That is the next topic. Stay with us. Coming up next, Thomas Thomas O'Neill White will be talking with Ahmed Nieves. This is... Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Join us in the studio at Buffalo Toronto Public Media for a preview of Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s new documentary, Making Black America. Black Americans created a world on the other side of the color line, a world behind the veil. Black people create spaces where we can be seen by each other. Sometimes you just want to celebrate how dope it is to be black. Join us at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, September 21st. Register at wned.org slash events. Support for the WBFO News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York, an independent private foundation investing in improvements to community health with the goal of a healthy Central and Western New York where racial and socioeconomic equity are prioritized so all people can reach their full potential and achieve equitable health outcomes. Learn more at hfwcny.org. WBFO is your home for trusted news about your community. And WBFO The Bridge connects music and community. Hear local music from bands like Pharaoh from Buffalo, Tedesco Knows Best from Niagara Falls, and Stress Dolls from Buffalo every day on WBFO The Bridge. Listen at WBFO 88.7 HD2 or WNED 94.5 HD2 or stream it from WBFOTheBridge.org or the WBFO The Bridge mobile app. This is Buffalo What's Next where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Hello, I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Today, we are talking improving the community through land and home ownership with Buffalo Information Sharing Cooperative founder Ahmad Nieves and his brother Ayat Nieves. Uh, Ahmad and uh, Ayat, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Talk to us about your business, Ahmad, Buffalo Information Sharing Cooperative. Information is the key word here? Yep. Um, So a few years ago, um, I started up this group. It's called. Um, it's actually Buffalo Information Sharing Collective. Uh, it's um, 
it's a group of loosely formed individuals, and we do workshops about uh, real estate, anything financial, and we just uh, these are free workshops where we believe information is a key, and we want to help inform the community so that they can make uh, the best decisions for their life. I was reading this interview you did with Buffalo Spree and the uh, incomparable Nanette Massey. You talk about your tar- target audience, uh, people who are working hard, but maybe uh, do not want or are sick of nine to five jobs. Uh, they're just looking for an opportunity. What can you provide for them? I feel like there's a lot of ways that people can improve their lives. And a lot of that has to do with information. And there's just so much information out there that it's hard to distinguish like what's good information, what's bad information. And there's also information that's in our face that we just don't know what's there. So uh, I started talking about the City of Buffalo auction, uh, how regular people could uh, engage at the auction and make better decisions um, and just and just go from there and build forward. How do you differentiate between good information, bad information, misleading information? I think experience is key. So um, when I do these workshops, if I'm not presenting, I choose somebody who has experience in this field, like real life experience, uh, not just someone who read about it or who you know took some classes about it, but someone who's done it and done it successfully. That's that's what's key is experience. Um, you're also quoted in the piece as saying that too many people are information hoarders. How is that a problem? How can it be solved? Um, the deciding factor for a lot of people. Um, is is information so a lot of people when they get good information they don't want other people to be competitive against them because they operate in the sense that if this person is successful i'm gonna be less successful and i don't really operate in that sense i believe that we could be successful all together as a community so when i have good information i like to share it with other people in the hopes that if they have good information, they share it back. So I believe we should all be sharing information and grow together. Sort of like a uh, rising tide lift all lifts all boats theory. Yes, exactly. Um. Again, you're listening to Buffalo. What's next? I'm here with Ahmad and Ayat Nieves. Um. This wasn't quite the career you envisioned when you graduated college. What did you have in mind as a career, uh, and what led you to create uh, BISC? Um, originally, I dreamt of either having a career in the nonprofit world or being um, a teacher. And after years, uh, after I graduated of years of working in the nonprofit world, I felt like a lot of them were ineffectual or just greatly overstated the importance in the world, and I was. First of all, I wasn't making that much money in the nonprofit world. I was stressed out. I felt a lot of the people were insincere people, and I felt like a lot of them were perpetuating the problems that they were claiming to fix. So I got burned on the nonprofit world. Um, There's not really one that I've worked at that I could say is that great. And that's not a diss to them. That's just a true feeling. So the reason I created... um, uh, Buffalo Information Sharing Collective is because I had a vision of what I wanted to see in the world and I wasn't seeing it in my community so I was like if it's not there I'm not seeing it I'll do it 
I want to circle back to working for nonprofits in a second. Um, but <laughs> coming from me, coming from a, a teaching family, my brother is a teacher and my mom was a teacher. What led you away from teaching? Oh my God. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so I grad I graduated college. I got into the school system. I started like substitute teaching and just working with these kids and seeing these kids and like all the things that they go through with their family life. It was just too much and you know, I was uh, I know some people are gonna be mad at me for saying this, but I, I started looking at other teachers and, you know, same age as me. I'm like, how long have you been teaching? They're like, three years. And I'm like, God, I was like, this person's like 26. And, you know, she looks like she's 35. They, they, <laughs> like a lot of these teachers, they just look old and bad. And that's not an insult to them. It's just. But it takes a toll on you. It's, oh, they look terrible. <laughs> 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 oh, you know, uh, you know. You know, she's, you know, she's like 32 and she looks like she's 50. Um, but what, what, uh, Sorry. I want to, I want to, since my, since my brother is a teacher, there is an importance though that you've probably, you probably recognize about, uh, having a person that looks like yourself Yeah. in a position like that. No, it's it's very important, um, and I commend the people who go out there and do it. Um, you know, there's some schools like, like uh, I still sub to this day every now and then, and there's some schools I go in, and you know there'll be young African American children, and the eyes light up. They're like, oh, because they they've they, they haven't see you. Yeah, they they You're see present. me. I'm mm -hmm. I'm a black male. They see me. They're excited. Maybe they don't have a black male in life, or maybe they don't see that many of them, and they're excited. And, you know, they'll come up, they'll give me a hug, they just they just saw me. You know, I've even gone to some schools, and at first it was funny to me, uh, the teacher would be, would be like, hey, we got a treat today. And I'm like, what are they talking about? They're like, we got a black person. I was just like, oh, <laughs> oh man. But oh, my. they didn't mean it with, you know, in a bad way. So I understood what they meant. Um, getting back to nonprofits, you know, you uh, you've worked for a number of local nonprofits, in including Push Buffalo and others. Um, what have you learned from those places that has helped you in your growth and your development? I've, I've learned a lot of people go out there with this positive can do attitude and they grossly underestimate the problems that they're trying to fix. So I think if we just do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, we'll fix the problems, but they don't see all these underlying factors. Can you give me an example? Um, sure. Um, so when I was working at Push, um, one of the things I did is workforce development, and they believed if we just provide opportunities to, to people to get good-paying jobs, that this would solve, you know, this issue. But a lot of people... And it seems like common sense to us is like a lot of people don't understand if you got a job at nine to five, you have to be there at nine. And a lot of people are just like they don't understand that or they don't get it. So they'll show they'll wake up at 10 and they'll get to the job at 1030. So it's like there's like lots of underlying issues. It's like you got to tell people basic stuff. Get to the job at nine because it starts at nine or get there a little five minutes before, 10 minutes before. And it's just lots of underlying things, common sense things that you and I'm may not think of that we do every day that other people don't get. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, again, you are listening to Buffalo What's Next. I am here with the founder 
of Buffalo Information Sharing Cooperative, Ahmad Nieves, and his brother Ayat, who is a Keller Williams real estate salesperson. I want to get to housing. It's an, it's an important topic for both of you. Mm-hmm. Um, educating the public about homeownership um, for you, Ahmad, started with buying a few vacant lots in the city. Mm-hmm. Can you t- talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I first went to the City of Buffalo auction two years in a row. I bought a bunch of vacant lots, uh, I think six in total to begin with. And what I what I originally wanted to do was make a community space out of them. And I was going to do gardening and all these things on them. But uh, I eventually ended up selling these vacant lots and making a profit. And that's where that's really where I started doing Buffalo Information Sharing Collective is because people ask me, like, how do you go to auction and buy these properties? How do you sell them and make money? And so I was just giving them, you know, the playbook for that. But I wanted to see not not more so like developers doing this. I wanted to see everyday people making money um, and showing them that maybe you don't have like ten, twenty thousand dollars to invest, but a few thousand dollars or even less than that, you could invest and make some money and use it to improve your life. How how does that work? You know, because people talk to me about uh, investments and like I don't have any money. How can I? How, how can I make? How can I make that that money work? How can I stretch that out? Okay, let's say you go to the City Buffalo auction. We haven't had one in the past two or three years, but we should have one coming up next year, hopefully. Um, and let's just say you have a thousand dollars to work with. Mm-hmm. You could buy a vacant lot for five hundred dollars at the City Buffalo auction. Um, and then you could there's the um, filing fee of three hundred twenty five dollars, so it, you'd walk away paying eight twenty five for that vacant lot. Now you got to hold it for uh, for six months after you get the deed. So you hold it for six months, and then you could put it on the market after that period. And let's just say you sell it for ten thousand dollars. You have all your closing fees. So let's just say you walk away with four thousand dollars profit. Just let's just a modest number. You you have four times your profit from that eight twenty five or four or five times your profit or you could do more. It's just Wow. It's just it's just knowing how to operate with uh, certain information. I mean there's a lot more that goes into it, but that's the basic uh overview of it. Yeah, I mean I don't I barely even own my shoes on my feet right now. So <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe maybe uh getting into buying a a vacant lot is is, is uh the thing to do. Um talk to me about filling filling a need. Um in in uh, talking to people about uh, land ownership and home ownership. And I, I'd love to hear from you as well, um, since you work for Ke- uh, Keller Williams, um, the importance of, of home ownership for people who may not think that they can afford to own a home. I'm glad you mentioned that. And my brother Ahmed works for Red Door Real Estate, a wonderful company, and he does a lot of great sales over there. So according to the census, 41.5% of people in Buffalo are homeowners, 73% of those people are white, 33% of those people are black. So right now, there are a lot of great programs that we're talking about at my brother's workshop tomorrow at Burning Books on Connecticut Street from 7 to 8.30. One of those is a Sunny May $30,000 grant for first-time homebuyers. In order to qualify for this grant, you have to live on the east side for at least two years. And then you can buy anywhere, I believe, in Erie County. I've even heard that you can buy anywhere in New York State. 
And, you know, there's going to be some basic financial requirements like with any mortgage. And then if you don't qualify for that program, let's say you live on the west side or somewhere else in western New York or New York State, the Sunny May, which is, comes with a $20,000 grant, will also address that one tomorrow at the workshop. So that's twenty dollars or $30,000 for free. All you have to do is meet basic income requirements, have the right credit score, and then you're ready for homeownership, along with some first-time homebuyer education classes that they recommend. There's also a lot of first-time homebuyer clubs out there that'll help you with 5000 or more towards down payment and closing cost assistance. And for those out there who need financial and credit repair, there's Belmont Financial Wellness Center on Jefferson and other programs like that that will help you improve your credit for free. In your position, Ayat, um, do you work primarily on the east side? Um, tell me a little bit about the work that you do. I work wherever my buyers or sellers are, but most of my work is in the city of Buffalo. I'd say about 50% east side and then 50% west side. And I primarily work with a lot of investors. They get a bad rep. A lot of my investors are savory characters. <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> but, you know, they're buying and investing in the community. But last year I helped several homeowners and it was really rewarding. A lot of them were buying, you know, Lockport or the suburbs, you know, just trying to get a better quality of life for their family. But I'm willing to help anybody and work with anybody. And a lot of the homes I sell are under 100000 and that means a lot more people can step into homeownership or into rental properties easily. Is there a push for maybe in your company or maybe that you've just seen over the last few years of promoting more homeownership uh, in, in areas where there are a lot of renters? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of programs out there through the city of Buffalo, through nonprofits, through programs like Sunny May, and Belmont is a huge proponent of promoting homeownership. Unfortunately, a lot of people, in my experience, aren't always willing to do the work. For example, when I did the Sunny May $30,000 post on Facebook, I got over 30,000 shares organically. I'm sorry, 30,000 reach organically, and I sent everybody a generic email. And unfortunately, most of the people who you know applied for the loan didn't qualify due to the credit. And I said, if you don't qualify, here's a free resource to go to to improve your credit. From my understanding, because I did follow up with some probably 20 or 30 of them, I had a few hundred outreach, a lot of the people weren't willing to do the work or didn't want to follow through. And that's the problem. Everybody wants a quick, instant result, but they don't want to do the hard work. And it, but it also seems as if, like, once you've been branded with having bad credit, you're kind of stuck in the mud. That's not true. I have a tenant. We put him on the GPS to housing and home ownership. And part of it is he gets a rent rebate back quarterly of $150. And he does 21 credit hours each quarter. And part of it is credit rebuilding, the first-time homebuyers club, and other things that are going to um, work in his favor to make him more credit-worthy, ready to buy a home. So... Just because you're branded right now doesn't mean you can't work towards a better future. Do you, are you, do you work in a lot of white spaces? How is that? Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people in my company are white. A lot of people that I deal with are white, but I also work a lot with minority communities as well. And I suppose people are people as long as they treat you right. It's all good. 
<laughs> and uh, you are listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I am here with Buffalo Information Sharing Cooperative founder Ahmad Nieves and his brother Ayat, a Keller Williams real estate salesperson. You offer a lot of presentations through uh, your Buffalo Information Sharing Cooperative. Um, something that piqued my interest was um, the tiny house revolution. Where can folks find more information about uh, Buffalo Information Sharing Cooperative? And then can you tell me a little more about this tiny house revolution? Okay, so the thing I love about this group is that I don't have all the information, but I know someone who does. So like for the tiny house workshop, what I do is I reach out to other people. So um, my friends, Cam and Emma, they they were living in a tiny house for a few years. So they originally did that workshop, and then I would just reach out to other people. So if people are interested in seeing the workshop about, about tiny houses, I'll reach out to my network, and I'll use them for the expertise. And you could, also, you could always follow us on Facebook, Buffalo Information Sharing Collective. Um, and you could see what workshops we have coming up and just, yeah. And then the expo, which is tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, can both of you talk a little bit more about that? I know I, uh, you had mentioned it. Yeah, so the expo that's happened tomorrow, it's from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at Burning Books on Connecticut Street. Um, it's an uh, expo on grants, weatherization, lead remediation, and home inspection. So we're going to have four, four to five different presenters talking about each of these topics. Ayat is talking about grants. He could tell you about some of the grants uh, that he's going to present tomorrow. Oh, I love talking about grants. That's <laughs> sure free <does>. money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, say that again. Grants are free money to fill a specific need or purpose. Most people in my family, like my brother and my sister, are like, shut up already. <laughs> you told them about this 20 times. I'm like, well, then just apply. But my two favorite grants are the City of Buffalo and the Erie County Lead Grant. According to the census, 90% of the homes were built before 1978. That means 90% of Buffalo homes may have lead in them. Lead has hazardous effects on children and pregnant women. So if you qualify by meeting very, you know, very fair income guidelines, you can and you have children under six are living in a home. You can apply depending on where you're at. I think on um, city of Buffalo, the so west side and parts of the east side, and then the Erie County, anywhere in Erie County, they'll do up to fifteen thousand dollars worth of work per unit. So if you have a two family with kids in each, that's potentially thirty thousand dollars in work. That can mean they usually focus on lead, but a small mm -hmm. portion is set aside for healthy homes. That means, let's say you live in a two family and it's got chipping and peeling paint on the outside, you've got 15 windows, you can potentially have your windows replaced, your siding done, um, and maybe even some new carpets or some new flooring in part of the house. And that's covered. If With the city of Buffalo, they'll put a small lien on your home. With the, uh, Erie County, they'll put the landlord pays between 1% and 12% of the total project cost. So you can get $30,000 worth of work done for $3,600, and the best part for tenants, you get a free hotel stay while you're there. Wow. Yeah, free hotel, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's to complain about? And then the landlord cannot raise the rent for the repairs that are done. So you get pretty much rent protection, an upgraded home, and a free hotel stay for 15 minutes worth of paperwork. And the process takes about three to six months from start to finish. Is this something you do annually or is this the first of its kind? 
The lead grant is, um, so the city of Buffalo applied for it. They got grant funding, I believe, about two years ago. Prior to that, they hadn't applied in about two year, uh, 20 years. The Erie County lead grant's been around for decades. It's a great program. We've done about 30 of them. I promote them all the time, and it's really easy to apply for. In fact, they need contractors. So if you're a contractor, you're supposed to be lead certified. You can get a job through, uh, potentially through the city of Buffalo or Erie County to become a lead certified contractor and do jobs like this. Well, there you go. It's a ton of information. Um, we have about eight minutes left, and there's something I wanted to ask both of you. We try to ask all of our guests, and it's just you know an open-ended question. Um, and Amon, I want to ask you first, uh, what does Buffalo need? In your opinion, when I ask you that question, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Um, what comes to my mind is what my group's all about is information. We just need good quality information being put out in the public and just educating people and letting them make the best decisions. I, I believe a lot of the problems are people do not have good information to operate off of. And if we all have great information to operate out of, I feel like people will do better decisions Make like, better decisions overall. That's that's where I'm focused. Good information, good quality information, just out there. How can you use Buffalo Information Sharing Cooperative to uh, build build out that build out that vision? Uh, just continuing doing what I do is like um, I do all these free workshops. I have a good reach. I have a good network, and I I do these workshops, and people come. I give this information. They're free to use this information how they want, but I envision them using it in good, positive ways. Um, an example of this, like sharing good information, is, and this is relevant now because I'm, as a real estate agent, I'm, I work in rentals, and I, I did my first rental listing for someone, and people are getting scammed left and right. So what happened was I put up this listing online, and... Uh, people are looking for good quality apartments and housing. So what happened is uh, some individual scammed my listing. Like they, they copied and pasted it. Oh. They're pretending to be the landlord and they're having people apply for this apartment. But what they're doing is before the people even see the apartment, they're charging them a $55 application fee. So my mind is, my mind, I'm thinking who would pay $55 to see apartment or to apply for apartment they haven't seen? I'm thinking you know use your brain but it's not no it, that's what i'm thinking but you know it's common sense to me but it maybe it's not common to them so this guy is getting people left and right so first of all don't pay don't pay a 55 dollar application fee for uh to see an just to apply for an apartment that you haven't seen yet and second of all the application fee is 20 dollars. so if somebody's hitting you with 55 dollars or some absurd number like that that should be your first red flag your second red flag is to pay to apply for an apartment you haven't seen yet so i feel bad for the people who are getting scanned by this but at the same time you know you know just think how, so how do you how do you um how do you catch these how do how do how do people get caught in these scams or how do you the scammers how do you is there like a policy or are there people that that go after these scammers the scammers, they just, the opportunists, they, they they see areas where they could, you know, just get involved and scam people. It's like, so they know a lot of people looking for an apartment or to move. So people are so excited about moving and finding a, a new apartment or 
or whatever, so that when they when they see these scammers and they they see these scams, you know their guards are down. They're not thinking about that. It's like all right, fifty five dollars, great, and I can see the house after I pay. They're not think so. A lot of people aren't thinking about. They're not thinking logically. They're thinking emotionally. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how these scammers you know get people. And they uh, what does Buffalo need? Education. We need education. I believe in the Buffalo Public Schools. Uh, I know people in the school board. I know a lot of substitute teachers and teachers. And, that you know, these kids need education. For example, a lot of people don't know that renters, um, homeowners have about 40 times more net worth than the average renter. The average renter has about $6,000 net worth. The average homeowner between the home and other assets they own is about 240000 We're covering that at the workshop tomorrow. That, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So if you're educated, like about the Ooh. rentals. Say that again, please. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So those people who got scammed out of the $55, and there's people who get scammed out of $800 by sending money. This I got my uh, rental ad cloned a few months ago. Send me the $800 and I'll send you the keys. It was an $1,800 house, and they literally copied and pasted just like they did to him. Wow. Except some people went ahead and called me first and saved themselves at 800 bucks. Oh my God, I get this whole house for $800? It's too good to be true. If you look up the address, my Zillow ad will pop up and my contact information will pop up. Thank God the scammer was dumb. <laughs> They're getting better. Um, and they cloned it and they, they didn't erase my information. But it's, that's happened to me a handful of times. It happens when people put up listings for sale. People will clone it and copy it. But an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So if you're saying, look, I want to escape my situation, it starts with education. We live in the information golden age. You can Google most topics, but most people won't. Buffalo has a plethora of agencies. Housing Opportunities Made Equal is one of them. They help landlords and tenants. Believe you me, I was surprised with the landlord part. Um, But they're a great organization. They help landlords and tenants resolve rental disputes and learn your housing rights and responsibilities. We should be teaching the children in the from elementary school and up about building generational wealth, how to do a basic budget, because to us it's common sense. But to a mm-hmm. lot of people, they don't have this at home. Their parents may not have known it, and they're generation zero. So they're kind of starting off at the bottom, and they have to work their way up. And like my brother says, people out there, information hoarding, and not saying, hey, kid, you should do this, or here's how you build a budget, or here's how you invest in real estate, or here's how you start a business. So we should be doing more education. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and I am here with Buffalo Information Sharing Cooperative founder Ahmad Nieves and his brother Ayat Keller Williams, real estate salesperson. Uh, I want to thank you guys again for being here. And you are listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. Mm-hmm.